Welcome to the Bricklayer's Notebook and the second episode of our two-part podcast on the work of bricolage and art called Dinner at Pygmalion's. My name is Don Mackay, and as usual, I'm here with the Bricklayer in residence, Jack Eastwood. At the end of the last episode, we left you at Pygmalion's having dinner and contemplating the menu. Now, Jack, what was on that menu? Well, the menu was, like all menus are, a set of suggestions, which began, Good afternoon, I'm your maitre d'. May I make some suggestions for your party? First, you may find it best to dine alone. If you are alone, please be seated in a chair immediately behind the door. Relax, open the eyes, listen to the body, touch anything you want. Move to the right when you change chairs. If you are dining in a party of two or more, the family will all talk at once. Because uh, if you had four people four sitting on four chairs, chairs all the four, all all the four bo- body parts would start to talk and you would have to bend over and listen to different body parts. So yes. it was, it, but that would be very much like dining with the family, a cacophony. It would be, right. So, you could do it. You could do, you could experience it. You could go by yourself and then you could bring a friend and then you could bring three friends and you could all sit down. And so you'd have three different experiences of the, uh, yeah. that would be different each time. So, and so, so this invitation or menu was now, please place the chairs back in place after you've gone. Now go in, meet the family, shake hands, enjoy yourself. And when you leave, if you enjoyed yourself, please tell others to come for a visit. Oh, one last thing you may break the seal on this page before you leave, if you like, but please wait until after you've dined. There was, it was a page folded in half that was on the front. Welcome to the dinner. And then on the inside, there were some notes on dinner at Pygmalion's. Now, that was sealed. There was a seal on the side of that. And you did not look at those notes about the dinner or about the whole piece until you left. Because it was, that's what I'd hoped. Because I did not want to prejudice your experience. I did not want to tell you what to experience, how to just go in there, have dinner and do whatever, see what happens. That's very much emphasizing the sensual experience too, that you should have the sensual experience, etc. And not worrying about interpretation. Yeah, you get what you get. You You don't get what I want to give you. And it's not that I wanted to give you anything, really. You know, this was an accident that that followed its own tail, Uh sort of thing. Yeah. And... T-A-I-L and T-A-L-E. <laughs> That's an element to this piece. Now, you were going to read something to me. I and was. I'm not sure what you were going to read. But oh, this well, is I... one of the things from the inside on the some notes on Dinner at Pygmalion's. Yes. Well, these would be reflections to be had afterwards, after the tactile, sensuous experience of the artwork. But it asks this question at the end of the, these notes. What is gender? but a choice lodging within a body that must be listened to, heard, a decision embedded in the space between the psyche and the spirit, one that makes a person feel whole. And when I showed me that, I struck my, how, and how of the moment is that? And how, in some ways, how gender liminality that's embedded in the, in the artwork and so on becomes vocal there. I suppose it's good. I think it was a very good decision not to have person read that until later. But it seems to me it's crucial to the piece. And it's, wow, very much topical for today. Yes. And, and very much in the spirit of 
Hermes, who is the god who is responsible for liminality, as you were saying, borderlines, crossings. He crosses between the gods and, and people, and pe- between people and the underworld. All, he's, he's, the, mm-hmm. he's the individual of crossings. And so in some ways, all of these things in suspension at the dinner mm-hmm. table for powers that they're surrounded by yeah. are very much the, the, the province of Hermes. And, yes. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because that man-god division, okay, yeah. is was really evident in the difference between the Greek pantheon and the Christian pantheon. The Christian pantheon, would I say, would, would be heavily on the god's side very little on the man's side. Jesus was a man, but okay, 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 let's not worry about that too much. Uh, Yes, but don't give him too many things that are really like everyone else having lustful thought, you know, maybe having slept with Martha or all of these things that might make him too human. All right, Let's let's not have that. So some notes on dinner at Pygmalion's on one page, on one half of the page when you open it up is all about the Greek side. On the other half is all about the changes that took place when the Christian side took over. So what you read, what was Pygmalion seeking a perfect mate in the man or woman, and, and the idea of what is gender. On the other side, within the context of the modern Christian culture, mod, modern, quote unquote, Christian, flees from the dual nature of gender, separating a person from the voice within their own body, voices that may grow and change within or between the body's seasons. Pygmalion's story tells of the desire to create the perfect mate, a man or a woman who, in or outside of marriage, remains passionate, loving, alive, not a stone figure. Has this longing changed? Mm. And that concept that nowadays, that the fluidity of gender, it is Uh, no longer dual. Right. It's not a dual nature, but there are powers that be that wanted to remain dual nature. And anything outside of that is anathema to them. It's still, it is still this battle between yes. body, body and allowing the body to express itself as it would and controlling it. Yeah, that's very interesting. I think the, Her- the Hermes function in Christianity is probably served insofar as it is by the Holy Ghost, that what is the vehicle that passes between divinity and humanity? And Hermes is a very physical character, whereas the Holy Ghost remains spectral and a problem. Even having it there is a kind of problem for the Trinity. Mm -hmm. So this is such a tactile piece, Jack. So the person who is engaging with it is engaged in so many different ways. And interestingly, you postponed the intellectual case, the interpretive function until afterwards. So well, the, yeah, I so mean, the, uh, again, the, as a piece of bricolage, it started out with just that silly idea, let's put some body parts on broken chairs. Well, how <laughs> did the body parts on broken chairs go from that to a di- dinner at Pygmalion's with commentary on the difference between the Greek way of seeing the body, ancient Greek way of seeing the body, before Christianity changed it, and the Christian way of seeing yeah. the body. Right. And those things sprung from 
oh god only knows where uh because this was not yeah it wasn't anywhere near thinking about stuff like that when i was putting the first body parts onto a chair well you know and speaking of chairs is probably echoing probably angus when he was making that rocking chair which we deal with in another podcast didn't have any sense of putting all those decorations all the moose and when he was putting together a rocking chair it allows creativity rather to be a mat one stroke as if the whole thing came to you in one vision to become part of time to be temporal to evolve bit by bit by bit have discrete parts rather than be one overriding vision mm-hmm. well i didn't have an overriding vision the vision there was a, a the vision sort of unfolded a friend of mine knew a man in mexico and he used to say to her he was kind of a visionary he used to say to her scout there is no road you make the road by walking on it mhm and that has to do with i think anyone who has a desire to create something might understand that statement oh i just want to do this yeah um uh, is it okay can i do this yeah okay it's all right i'm going to do it and so then they begin to do it and at the beginning of it they may not they may not know they may not understand that and that's what we're that's one of the main elements of bricolage that i think we are working with is the end product is not in the mind the way a photograph is boom you know oh yes. there it is all oh, boom yeah. no the end product comes through process through and over time this whole thing which you know didn't spring up in 2 days this was months of work and months of work in a shop by myself very hermetic hermes thank you uh <laughs> in a shop building things that people would come in and say what are you doing and I'm, oh i'm putting body parts on chairs uh <laughs> right. oh yeah okay well, that's a, that's a brilliant idea you and know then, and, and, and later now we... what now what are you doing oh you're carving uh, torsos in a big chunk of wood uh, mm, that's interesting what are you doing now oh that's a little you know you put right. a piece of glass on you know and then at the same time saying i got to make a living i got to make a living i got to make a living i made nothing from this nothing yeah well i got a fee actually for showing it which which probably paid for about 4 days of the work and it was it was over 6 months constructing yeah must have been there's so many pieces of it when you look at it it just seemed to be so eloquent i think that's another element of bricolage that the bricolor is not focused on selling on finance it's yeah. it's the process of making itself yes and we'll always return to that process even in the point even when the product is finished there's it's eloquent with process it's eloquent with what happened the point by point imaginative practice that's happening in, in relation to the materials at each each point. Well. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting that Hermes invented the lyre. When he was born, Hermes stole his brother's cattle, his brother was Apollo, and he made the lyre out of tortoise shell, parts of the stolen cattle that he put together as strands and reeds. 
and he just threw the put sinew, this together. The sinew from the, the sinews, cow. Yeah, yeah, sinews from the cow that he's that he's stolen from his brother. He rustled, and then and then, so he made the lyre, which became the symbol of poetry and music both. And when Apollo finally discovered who the thief was and confronted Hermes, Hermes said, "Oh, do you want this lyre?" And Apollo took it, and then it became systematically the symbol of high art. But the bricklayer always remembers. Hermes did it. Hermes, Hermes cobbled thing together this thing. He cobbled it together with this and that. And there's a yeah, lot of there's yeah. that. And that, that Hermes, I think, in that respect, that aspect of Hermes, as well as the liminality, is always, always present in bricolage. And I think it's Hermes and Hermes meeting with Aphrodite, ah. which, of course, the two of them, he was a charioteer, too. He was, you know, go-between, you know, yeah. taking people from earth to the gods. So, you know, the two of them in the chariot together, of course, the two of them put together becomes hermaphrodite, which is that strange melding of the body parts of male and female in one person. And nowadays, the concept of gender fluidity is, I think, was probably to some degree better understood by the Greeks back then when they uh, they saw and said, well, we have hermaphrodites. Uh-huh. They're, they're, they're a form. They're, they're, and they didn't say bad. And you weren't or, nailed down to a, to, you weren't nailed down at birth to a, a gender identity. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, I'm, I mean, this is speculation on my part of, entirely because what can we know? Was there, you know, was there sexism back in, let's ask Sappho, who might say, yeah, there was a lot of it because, uh, you <laughs> yeah, know, we had yeah. to come over to Lesbos, hang out because uh, we were ostracized. Yeah. There's, there's part of this dinner at Pygmalion's, which in 1995, I was not cognizant that I might be addressing it yeah. at all, except that as you read in that one little statement, I was. Yeah, I mean, we don't. The fact that it now seems almost prophetic doesn't uh, at all speak against the fact that it was fumbled towards bit by bit, visceral act by visceral act. There should come up, come upon it, rather than the idea of sort of like the romantic idea of the vision as a lightning stroke, and then everything follows from that. This is. A hunch followed by another hunch followed by a third hunch and things come cobbled together like watts tower and, and it's also the education of the bricolore ah uh, yeah the, the bricolore is learning as the bricolore goes not only choosing but saying what's necessary oh what's the history behind this how's this so, you know, I, I had to learn about sundials. I had to learn Greek mythology. I had to marry it with the difference between Greek mythology and Christian mythology. You know, this sentence, and I'm going to read it again. What is gender but a choice lodging within a body that must be listened to, heard, a decision embedded in the space between the psyche and the spirit, one that makes a person feel whole and I think anyone now who's in the LGBTQ extended 
community yeah. would probably resonate with that. This was, I would was not trying to speak at all to anything like that. And I'm surprised even to find it now. But it was putting the speakers into the body parts. There we are. The body speaks and to you. And the body exactly. will speak to you. Yeah. And I thought, one of the elements in making it, I thought, people don't listen to their bodies. Right. So if right. you put body parts, if you put speakers in the body parts, they will have to listen to the body parts. And Maybe that will give them a connection to listen to their own body parts. It's interesting, too, that something like we can now articulate here with all this technology as an idea was a visceral experience. That, again, is part of vicolage. That it's going to be a visceral experience and remain a visceral experience, even if it goes into the art world and is in an art gallery. It still remains a visceral experience. And in some ways, what you, the way this show happened, it had to be. The viewer could not view it in a kind of objective way in which the viewer is displaced from the artwork in a, making kind of judgments. The viewer had to be a performer. The viewer had to be involved. The be, viewer be. became part of the art. You and know, that, in, in, in theater, they talk about the fourth wall. And when, when someone on stage addresses the people in the audience, actually directly, they call that breaking the fourth wall. So mm -hmm. I always thought and felt, and I don't know why, that, you know, you go to an art gallery and it says right there as you walk in the door, please do not touch the art. Please do not touch the art. Please do not touch the art everywhere you go. And so you walk around in there kind of as if your hands are bonded to your legs so you don't touch anything. Or the, the guard will tell you. Or Yeah, or, well, 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 excuse me, sir, excuse me, sir. Yeah. You're too close to that. Uh, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. So I, I just thought, I, I, I can't, I don't want to, I don't abide by this in some way. So I want to construct a piece in which someone enters it and is actually able to touch the art. Now, of course, that brings problems. Somebody touched the gnomon and knocked it over and I had to repair it. But that was only one, that was one thing that happened. And I don't know when it happened and who, you know, why, whether they were trying to steal it or whether they just touched it. And, you know, uh, it, yeah. it, it's, it was, it is carved from stone, a very soft stone. It's fragile. Uh -huh. You know, in, in the viewing, I took a risk that something might be damaged, but it was a risk I was willing to take. Yeah. You know, if, if 10,000 people sat in this and listened to it, well, they might have to reconstruct in a way that made it them able to still touch and not break things. The more we talk about this, you know, the more it seems to be that all these elements, all of these instances of bricolage we come up with are kind of implied critiques of high art, not high art itself, but of the attitudes to high art, the attitudes that make it high and not imminent, not immediately tangible to us. Dinner at Pygmalion's is certainly an example of that. Well, it was, yes, I, I think I agree with you, and I would admit to a slight tendency to be what would be called iconoclastic. In other words, all the icons that have, that of mythology I would say, well, why? Why do you give that such sway? Why do you, the icons in our world, the gurus in our world, the, the, the religious symbols and symbol, why? Why, is, why have you embedded in that such a 
power and force. And, and does that power and force, is it deserved? Should we not examine that? And of course, mm-hmm. there's, if you do try, take Salman Rushdie, for example, to examine, well, your life can be threatened. You can be threatened for how dare you take something that is our sacred image and even look at it, even make comments about it. You are not allowed. So this was the one one beautiful thing about Christianity is you can criticize it, and nobody's going to. Well, maybe nowadays uh, you might get in a little bit of trouble. Depends. But what, but there are some where religions <laughs> where if you do criticize it, you're in big trouble. Yeah. Your life could be in danger, and I mean, to some degree, people who work in the industry who are trying to help women who may have gotten pregnant, their lives can be threatened now because someone else thinks its idea of body and spirit supersedes the other one. So anybody who's doing anything that might yeah. change life, life form, abortion, would be, it's okay, I can kill them. Uh, it's happened. So we're getting a bit off. But as for myself, the, the iconoclastic nature the comments on each of these things paralleling a past thing, which had its problems too, as I mentioned before, the Aphrodite cult and the Christian cult. But the parallels between the two and the difference between how one saw body and how the other saw body. Yeah. Well, there's no way a person could could engage with this artwork without it being experiential as opposed to being simply judgmental. You had to be the viewer was not just a viewer. The viewer had to be involved, was a participant. Yeah. The other thing is that the reason why the notes were sealed until after you left was that it had nothing to do, the work itself had nothing to do with, it had to do with Pygmalion in the end, had to do with choosing your own mate, but it had no religious dimension to it in the sense of the work itself. You know, you didn't go in and see Christian symbols or Greek symbols or gods or anything else. It was just body parts and a table and a dinner. Yeah. So it wasn't the, my introduction in the middle was just some notes and some thoughts, some thoughts, like some notes and thoughts on, yeah. on the, the relative nature of these two things, such as one of the notes says Aphrodite's symbol was a swan, the power of the swan pulling you into the sky. And, and the other one on the Christian side was a white dove. The white dove, that's a very Christian symbol, you know, the, the symbol of, well, it's a symbol of peace, but it's also a symbol that has no agency. It's not lifting you. It's not changing you. It's, it's purity. It yeah. embodies purity, whereas the swan embodied the power of passion. So the parallels just seemed to me, I was just riffing on the parallels, and I didn't want anyone else to have to deal with that dynamic while they were experiencing yeah. din- their dinner at Pygmalion's. It was just whatever you got, you got. And you could bring your lunch. And you could eat there. Yeah. You, could bring- <laughs> you could eat. eat. You could have your lunch inside this. I mean, I think that 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 sort of addresses this question of whether it's art or bricolage. There's not many artworks you can have your lunch inside. Whereas it's also or you a table. eat your it's, lunch off. It's a table. It's, yeah. a t- it's a table as well as everything else. So people, you know, if we just take aside, nobody's looked at this program, let's see your, your notes, and people address this, you say, well, what was that about? And you can imagine a lot of different responses to that. 
well, it was about the story of Pygmalion. And when you sat down, you heard this tale and said, no, it's all about gender. It's all about gender and, and gender uh, fluidity. So I said, well, no, actually, I felt it was both like the contrast between Christianity and Greek mythology. And, and uh, I said, no, I just thought it was about the tactile experience. All of these would be right in, in, in a lot of ways. And that's part of what makes, has made it such a... Uh, such an unknown. So, well, because it doesn't sit down for a single interpretation. Well, and, and again, here is another element to it. Where do artworks reside? Where do bricolage works reside? Artworks reside if they have a life stored away in the basements <laughs> of art galleries. And they come out for occasional viewings on important whatever retrospectives. But for the most part, they're parked. Where would you park this table? Where would you park all this artwork? In an art gallery, how often would it come out? Someone offered me that they wanted to buy it. They offered me $1,000 for the whole thing. I mean, you couldn't even buy a table at that point. Well, you probably could, but a, a handmade table in no. 95 would cost <laughs> you $1,000. It was sort of like, what's the value of bricolage? Right. Well, it, as art... Uh, the value of that piece would probably be if I used the modern day, you might pay three or four million for it. Yeah. But of course, no one. Anyway, we don't need to talk a lot about that. But it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's again the difference between the valuation of a piece of art and the valuation of a piece of bricolage. Yeah. And I think it's a totally, when you ask that question, you're saying there's a totally different value system that's being presented, argued for, without without any voice by the fact of bricolage. Mm -hmm. It's always going to be ingrained in your ordinary experience, in your day-to-day -day experience. Eating dinner, children eating dinner, body parts uh, being present. It's going, to be, it's going to be there in a different way from the most art. Art that just, just sits on a wall. Or, or as you're saying, even worse, this is this is stored in an art gallery someplace and only brought out now and again. Well, there's public art too, so there are pieces that are out in the, that are meant to last. Nowadays, they're tearing down some of that public art <laughs> because the consciousness of today is not the consciousness of yesterday. And so, on that note, we'll say, if you enjoyed this odd cast, then please join us again. And if you didn't. Blame Sally. Blame Sally.